Shalom. Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Ozdan, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our dap today, Masachet Ketubot, dap Kufbet, page 102. So in preparation for this dap, and it's interesting to me because often people ask me, how do Ann and I prepare for the podcast? This actually was a very challenging dap for us because it's really a dap that requires napikias, meaning that you just sort of can read it and understand it, which is, you know, very much how dapiomi learning goes. Uh, but really requires, you know, be'iyun. In other words, we really would need to spend a lot of time to understand some of the concepts that are being introduced, particularly on Amud Aleph. So instead of sort of reading a lot inside, because I really, and I sort of could not figure out sort of a small portion, uh, I think I'm going to talk about this stuff outside. Um, and continuing from a discussion that was started on yesterday's stuff at the bottom, what this stuff is really trying to understand is how do we get to financial agreements, right? And do they have to be written down or can they exist just by a verbal agreement? And furthermore, when we discuss verbal agreements, are we even allowed, should we write them down or are we even allowed to write them down? And so what we basically see is a series of discussion amongst the Amurayim about how do we establish financial agreements um, how do we prove that they exist? Is it enough for them to just be verbal? Um, and there are circumstances where it is enough just for them to be verbal. I think this discussion is a reflection of, you know, today we're in a sort of a hyper, I don't know, data information world, right? Everything can be written down. Everything can have a paper trail, right? Like it's almost impossible. If you put something on the internet, uh, you would have to work hard to get it erased. But in a time and place where there's no printing press yet, where a lot of people are illiterate um, and, you know, the ability to even just write things down is not so available, the concept of having verbal agreements, even to us, that may seem very, very foreign, right? Like, in other words, we wouldn't, that would not necessarily hold up in today's court of law. Uh, in the times of the Mission of Gemara, it was actually a real way that these types of arrangements and agreements were made and they had to be upheld in court. So I think one of the most interesting aspects of this is the question of can these things be written down, right? I spoke before about speech acts where we know that, you know, certain statements take effect, right? Like the through the verbal utterance, action happens. And then we have the other kind of, you know, verbal statement, which is, a matter of a stipulation or a promise or, you know, that kind of, um, um, here we're talking about contracts, right? Agreements based on someone giving you their word. And then certainly we would think again in this day and age that you could write that down. And, you know, honestly, I think we relate to things that are written down as stronger than something that is verbally, you know, uttered, uttered verbally as compared to being written down. Written down is there for posterity. It ha it's got a proof involved in it, right? Like anybody can come and see what the stipulations were as opposed to having to have heard them and, and be witness to them, right? But there's a discussion and it carries really through this stuff over whether even it's allowed to write these things down. Specifically, I found it interesting that this example, this factor, I should say, is discussed in the context of those pikhin, those sharp people that were mentioned in the Mishnah, right? The sharp people who would, add in their stipulation to say that um, that they 
we're only going to provide for the right. So again, the, let's refresh our memories on the particulars of the case. A woman comes into a second marriage with a child, with a daughter, and the new husband is going to provide for her. This this is the mother's condition of getting married that the new husband is going to provide for the daughter um, for five years, and the mother's stipulation then is that she's going to get married only under these terms. The husband says, yes, yes, I'm going to do that. He stipulates that. And then the Gemara says these sharp people would be, would negotiate that a little more carefully. And they would say, oh, you know, as long as we remain married, right, for five years under the condition that we stay married, as opposed to him being on the hook for the five years, even if then they would divorce, let's say. So that text says specifically so it says that they they would write it right that they would write it down explicitly so the Gemara then here says meaning doesn't mean that they explicitly wrote it, wrote it down it seems to be that it's a matter of simply stating it that it's not that they're allowed to write it down this you know, there's it's a machloket here between Ravina and Ravashi. Are the these things allowed to be written down or not? And Ravashi says they're not allowed to be written down. And then Ravashi reinterprets this same statement from the Mishnah to say that when they said write, meaning to write it down, they meant say to say out loud. And I feel like really Ravashi, like that's a pretty explicit term to reinterpret. So the Gemara says, you know, is going to ask on this in the name of Ravina. Do you really call something that is said, saying, something that is to be said out loud as writing? And Ravashi says, yes. He says, oh, Ravashi gives the example of a different Mishnah. This goes back to 83. If, if a man says, I have no dealings with your property, it says there that he writes to his wife, but really in that case, Rabbi Chia says that this is an example of one who says to his wife, and therefore verbal agreements might be indeed, or are in fact, referred to as writing in the Mishnah. And of course, then the question is, but just because it could be doesn't mean it has to be, except for according to Rav Ashi's opinion, this is about stipulating verbally, and that's that's how maybe because that's how agreements were made more more than the formal you know sitting down with your lawyers type of thing that we would expect nowadays. Yeah, so I think that's the piece that's really interesting, right? That we would think writing down would be better, and there's a question that maybe even writing is not good. Um, and again, it's so counterintuitive to how we would work today because we love to write things down. Our whole society is based on that notion. And that's exactly the opposite of what's happening here. So it's it's this is a strange concept, I think, to many of us Um, to wrap this episode up. uh, I'm just going to hop down to something at the bottom of the top. So there's a discussion that ensues about sort of who should raise a daughter. And the idea is, is that the mother's family, a mother and the mother's family is best suited to raise a daughter. And there's a very, very bizarre, um, uh, uh, you know, Brysa that gets quoted here. Uh, so the Gemara says the following. So there was a question when we talk about sort of this cases of divorce that a girl lives with her mother, right? So one of the suggestions was that we're even talking about an adult woman, right? And so, you know, so Dilma Biktan So the Gemara says maybe we're actually talking about a minor. 
Why? Because of an incident that occurred. So what's the incident? Titania, we learned in Abraisa. Misha made Veniach ben Katan Limo, right? We have a case of someone who died and left a minor son in the care of his mother. Okay. So in other words, a man dies, he had a son, and this, you know, and the son should stay in the care of his mother, right? As opposed to the son's mother, um, as opposed to the heirs of the father. And I think one of the things that's interesting here, and we'll see this in tomorrow's um uh, uh, there's a mission on tomorrow's staff is sort of like, there's this tension between like, where does the woman live? Like, where does this wife live? Is she really part of the husband's household? Does after a divorce or what her, does she be, go back to her father's household? Right? So this husband, this man dies, there's a son to be taken care of. And it says that, you know, the, what the mother should take care of the son. Your Shea of Omrin, right? The heirs of the father say, Yehega del Tleno. Right, he should grow up with us. Vimo married, and his mother says, the son should grow up with me. We leave him with his mother. And we do not leave the child with those the father's heirs. Why? Because there was a story once where there was a boy who was left with the heirs, with the father's heirs, as opposed to the mother. And they slaughtered him on Erev Pesach. Now, this is like a totally bizarre uh, brisa. And the question is, is this meant to be taken literally? Not literally. It's definitely written in extreme language. But the idea basically is, is that at the end of the day, it is the father's heir's benefit not to have this child alive. Meaning, it costs them money to support him. And so the case that they're talking about is, is that they, you know, killed a child because they basically didn't want to support him anymore. Now, what the Mepharshim explained here is, is that so even more so than if they would do this to a male child, even more so than a, 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 a minor girl, a girl who's a katan, should also not be left in the care of the heirs who are financially obligated to sustain her. It's better for her to be with her mother. And then obviously that food, you know, that, that money is sent over basically, but she should not be left in their care. It's interesting to me that something's so dark, right? We always say that we're sort of a people who are of rachamim, of chesed, of kindness. This is a very, very dark thing to say or to suggest would actually have been a problem. Um, Anne noted that in one of the commentaries that she saw, that there's even a version of this brisa that says it was Erev Rosh Hashanah. And there's a question if that text was actually changed. And if we, it was always Erev Pesach, but it was changed to Erev Rosh Hashanah because there's an implication of sort of like blood libel by saying that this happened on Erev Pesach. So very, very interesting, Brisa. Unfortunately, because of the Dafyomi Pace and Chagim and everything, I don't have as much time. Wanna add, I yeah. just want to add one thing, which you've touched on, right? But this idea, whether it's Erev Pesach or it's Erev Rosh Hashanah, the point is that these are bad people, right? The idea right. that you're so preoccupied with this situation that you're going to go, that you have to go kill this kid right now rather than deal with Pesach, which means you're going to end up impure, right? And you can't do the Korban Pesach. And likewise, if it's Erev Rosh Hashanah, even if that's a an, uh, a censoring issue to make sure that there's less concern of a blood level. But the idea is you're about to stand in Yom Hadin on, on Rosh Hashanah and be judged for your deeds and you don't even care because you're gonna you're so caught up in the fact that you're gonna come kill this kid. It's insane, right? Like it's bad people. 
That's, well, that's right. And point. I want to explain both of those holidays are important because the idea of it doing Arab Pesach, what some of the commentators say is that they become tame by killing the kid. Now, again, if you were willing to kill a child, I don't know that you care about Tuman Tower on Arab Pesach, because remember, you have to be Tahor to bring the Korban Pesach. But I think that it, 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 this is speaking extreme language. If you say it's Arab Rosh Hashanah, as some versions have it. So then again, as you said, Anne, it's like before Yom Hadin, you would behave this way. It's like you don't even care. But I think what the Brisa and the Dap is trying to highlight is, is that they recognize that the father's heirs are, you know, not everybody may have the child's best interest. A mother will always have the child's best interest because it's not her, she's not losing anything financially by taking care of this child. And therefore, that is part of the reason why it's best for the child to be there. And why she's making the stipulation before she enters into the second marriage. Exactly. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.